Okay, session two of a Christian perspective on marriage, family, and singleness. Uh, we'll do a sort of a brief review of last week, and, and hopefully, you know, you always um, sort of second-guess yourself or, or replay in your mind, I should have said this, should have said that. I'm not sure that after last week, I kind of gave a very clear explanation as to what we mean when we were trying to, um, to get across the idea that marriage is for work. Um, that I think we were dancing around it, but without specifically trying to put our finger on it, I think there was maybe something a little bit lacking. So in the review that we'll do before we get started, we'll touch on that before we go into some of the things that we have tonight. Um, let me open this up with a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, we ask now that as we come to your word that you would um, give us insight, but also give us caution. Uh, some of the things that, uh, that we delve into are not as uh, clearly detailed in your word as what we might like. So, Father, where your word speaks, let us be confident. Where uh, you don't speak, cause us to be silent, uh, if not extremely cautious, uh, we want ultimately to be able to, uh, to marvel at your goodness and creation, even to the point of uh, your institution of marriage, and to see more, uh, more clearly how that design works itself out in your created order, um, what your purpose and plan is, what the designs are, so that we can uh, more fully live up to uh, what you have created us for, especially for those of us who right now are, uh, are in marriage relationships. But we ask ultimately that you would help us to keep our minds focused on Christ and to realize that even in marriage, uh, marriage points us to Christ. Uh, so help us th keep things in perspective. May all that we do and say please you and be accurate with your text. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Okay. A uh, quick review on what we had from last week. Last week, when we were talking about uh, marriage, we tried to start off with the why question, why marriage, which ultimately gets to the purpose behind marriage. A lot of the, We mentioned that a lot of the talk that goes around, uh, whether it's a marriage seminar or uh, a sermon or a devotional or something like that, usually deals with things like uh, the what or the how. So, you know how marriage works, what the function is, the tools, but the why, the purpose, what the end goal is, oftentimes is sort of overlooked, and that seems to be an important, an important thing to consider because obviously if we know what the end goal of marriage is or the purpose that it has in God's created order, that gives us a better mark by which we can measure um, marriage relationships, whether ours or in our encouragement of, uh, of those around us. So, we noted last week, particularly in the Genesis account, and that was where we spent most, if not all, of our time, that in uh, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, what you see is that God's image bearers are charged with dominion over creation. God makes Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, tells them to be fruitful and multiply, and then tells them to, um, to exercise dominion over the earth to subdue it. And that the, the design then seems to be that as image bearers, they are going to be representatives who are in some limited way modeling something of 
the Creator's authority and design and ingenuity themselves. Uh, they're going to manage, they're going to uh, be responsible for what God has brought into being, but they're going to do it together. One of the benefits of Genesis 2, when the, the text backs up, to give us a view of the situation before the woman is created, is that we get a little bit more context into why the apparent need, not just for two people, but for two people who exist differently as man and woman. So in Genesis 1, we have this broad overview that says, uh, let us create man in our own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In the summary overview of Genesis 1, it appears that both man and woman existed at the very same time right from the start. In Genesis 2, we find out that actually that's not the way that it took place, if we're piecing the puzzle together correctly, that there was a process by which God was progressively shaping and forming and filling his creation, so that in Genesis 2, one of the things that we're told is that at one point in time, there is no shrub or bush or plant on the ground because there is no man there to care for it. So creation itself, in its flourishing and thriving, must have a person in order to watch over it, in order to nurture it, in order to care for it. God creates Adam, puts him in the garden, but then within uh, Adam's placement in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it, we have the statement later on that there was no Um, There was no helper found for Adam. It's not good for him to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And then after surveying the animal kingdom, there wasn't a good match there. The point that we tried to make is that in the context of Genesis 2, it seems most, uh, most simply explained when God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him, that the problem of Adam's solitude is not necessarily one of loneliness, although marriage does address loneliness in some respects, but Adam being alone is not good in the sense that he has a certain task to accomplish, and it's not good for him to be about that task by himself. Therefore, God will make a helper for him. He'll make a partner to join, to join with Adam to go about this work that they now will undertake together, which is why God then goes and creates woman. And so this, the way that we tried to sum it up at the end was from a quote uh, given by Christopher Ashe in his book on marriage, where he makes the simple statement that marriage is instituted by the creator in the context of meaningful work. That's not to say, and we need to be very clear here, that's not to say that the only reason or the main reason that marriage exists is so that people can do more work together than they could by themselves. But it is to say that at least in the Genesis account, especially in chapter 2, that you can't get away from the connection that exists between Adam being placed in the garden to cultivate it and keep it And then God following that up with, it's not good for Adam to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him. In almost any other context, we would recognize the need for a helper as someone who would come alongside of to make up for some sort of inadequacy or inefficiency. 
We, we wouldn't think, as we so often do when it comes to, I'll make a helper suitable for him, we wouldn't automatically jump to ideas of companionship or fellowship, or as, as true as what that may be. It's, it's just not the clearest fit. So it's worth noting then that in Genesis, one of the primary emphases that, emphases that we see in that text is on the emphasis that Adam and Eve have been created to accomplish something in God's creation. As such then, one of the primary reasons that God puts man and woman together is so that they can be about the task and the job together in God's kingdom doing meaningful work. So from here, if you want to know what a good working marriage looks like, it probably looks something like this. Right? You can see the husband there on the right. And there's the, the wife on the left. Those, that's a, just an unbelievably big bundle of sticks, apparently. I don't know what that, what that is exactly. Or this one. If, um, if your eyesight is particularly good, you'll notice that the, uh, I guess the husband, uh, walking with the umbrella, no umbrella for the wife, but he's laboring hard with that single bottle that he's got in his left hand. And his wife is dutifully helping him in his work by carrying cases of bottles. And then maybe my favorite. You can't really see all the fine detail here, but that guy's smoking a cigarette in the, yeah, in the, oh, the first one was too? Smoking a cigarette? Yeah. So there it is. If you, if you smoke cigarettes, you're not going to be a good, a good husband, I guess. All right. This is not... This is not what working marriage is, just in case you wanted to know, all right? Also, to go along with that, it needs to be said that when we talk about the fact that marriage is created in the Genesis context um, for the purpose of meaningful work, that we're not to come away with the impression that marriage has sort of a utilitarian function, Right? Or that marriage is just all about function. And that's why we come to, to what we have tonight, which is to look at the idea of love and intimacy in marriage and the marriage relationship and to see how it fits into uh, the marriage design and what the, uh, what the role and the place of it is. For tonight, I don't anticipate, if, if for whatever reason, you know, we're kind of drug along by irresistible forces, I don't think that we're going to touch on anything related to sexual intimacy. This is going to be more relational intimacy. We will touch on that in our next session and use that, I think, to make the transition into the family part of the discussion as well, okay? So, again, this is sort of a work in progress. But if you have your Bibles, go back to Genesis 2. We're going to spend a good bit of our time there tonight. Genesis 2 really is, is interesting because of the fact that, one, it can be so easily misunderstood, right? You, we tend to ignore the significance of, um, of Eve being created as a helper for Adam in his work. Uh, we bring in a lot of preconceived ideas. Um, but then Genesis 2 is also interesting because it is so rich. It, beyond just the work assignment or the calling that Adam and Eve are going to enjoy together and partner in in exercising this fruitful work of subduing and exercising dominion, you do get other aspects of marriage that are, that are highlighted here. So 
Go, for example, in Genesis 2, skip down to, uh, let's pick up at verse 21. This is where uh, God is going to create the woman, and we read this. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. First things first, I want to look at the, uh, if you were to use highfalutin language, etymology, the, some of the, uh, the naming and the significance of the naming. So in verse 23, when Adam sort of gives this what appears to be sort of a poetic kind of, you know, response to what it is that he sees when he looks at uh, this creation that God has brought about. In the second half of verse 23, he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is one of the places where um, we, we get sort of the gist of it even in English because of the fact that man is at the root of woman, right? In the Hebrew, it works the same way. Uh, the word that Adam uses or the word that we find in Genesis 2 for, uh, for woman is isha. So he says, she shall be called isha because she was taken out of ish, man. So what happens then when, Adam's, when Adam, quote unquote, names his wife, names her woman, interestingly enough, he does something similar with the animals, right? When they're paraded before him and he, he names them, the naming act itself says something about the relationship that exists between Adam and this created order. The naming that Adam does for his wife also, maybe we'll allude to it further if we have more time, also says something about the way that the relationship works in terms of, um, I, would, I would argue anyway, and I think others would too, in terms of headship, loving headship, but headship nonetheless. Here though, the word, the, word, the language that, uh, that Adam uses this, she'll be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish, highlights two truths that are simultaneously held together. One is that there is a tremendous amount of similarity between the man and the woman. When he goes to say, when he thinks in his mind, what am I going to call, I don't even know if he has a word for her yet. I don't don't know how this works. But what am I going to call this? Something happens where as he sizes her up or as he looks at her, he, he recognizes a certain mirror image. And he wants to capture that if, we're, if we can invest all of this thinking in Adam's mind. Who knows how it actually happened. But he wants to capture in some way by the naming the similarity that exists between himself and the woman. If not for the simple fact that remember what happened before this is that Adam stands opposite the animals as they're brought in front of him, and as he stands opposite them, he recognizes very clearly, these are not like me. 
There's a difference here. Not so when he sees the woman. There is something where he says, yes, I, this, this is me. And so he wants to get at the language that's used, the isha and ish play on words, as it were, gets at that similarity. What it also does, though, is that it simultaneously highlights the fact that as, as similar as what man and woman are, they are still different. So they are simultaneously the same, like one another, even as they are very distinct in certain respects or in certain features. Now, we would say that most clearly, at least at first glance, especially in light of the fact that neither one of them are clothed at this point, the most obvious difference would have been in the physical appearance, anatomically. But... That can't be, we, we would say, as we continue to work our way through Scripture and we look at some of the statements that are made about uh, man and woman in Proverbs and Psalms and Song of Solomon, uh, when we get to the New Testament and we see discussions being made about husbands and wives there, we recognize that, that, that the differences between man and woman exceed just mere physical differences, and at this point, you have to be very careful because you, we, we get into the, the habit of sort of broad-stroking those differences, right? That men are from Mars, women are from Venus, or whatever it is. And then you, you kind of peg, well, all men are like this, all women are like this, which is not necessarily true. But there do seem to be some differences that just seem to, to hold sway, even cross-culturally and, you know, through human history. Okay, but here the first point is the language that's used is highlighting the similarity and the difference that exists. So, number two, there is what we might call a corresponding otherness. I will, we'll explain that in just a second. A corresponding otherness of the sexes that has an attractive quality that draws a couple together in solidarity. Now, that's a mouthful, and there's more than one phrase that we need to look at to see how that's drawn out. This corresponding otherness. This is reflected in the, in the language, the isha-ish play, where she's like me, but then she's not exactly like me. And the fact that the otherness of the woman works in such a way that, well, let's, let's back up a little bit. When God goes to create woman, how does he do it? He could have done it any way that he wanted to, right? I mean, everything else that he made, he more or less spoke into existence. He did apparently form Adam out of the dust of the ground, he could have formed Eve out of the dust of the ground, but he doesn't do that. What does he do? He takes something, rib, mid, midsection, something, we, we're not sure exactly. He takes something out of Adam and uses that as the basis or the starting point by which he forms Eve. So one of the other interesting features of the creation account in terms of 
the institution of marriage and the differences between the sexes is that from the very beginning, one of the little subtle plays on this is that Adam is, Adam is put to sleep. God removes something from Adam, uses that to create the wife, and then notice that Adam's response in verse 23, you know, we started at the end, that she'll be called woman because she, was, she came out of man. But the first thing that he says is, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, which sounds nice and poetic, but there's actually a, a measure of literal truth to that. Something was taken out of me to make her, and because something of me exists in her, she, she really does belong to me. In that respect, then, the way that the differences that exist between man and woman is almost sort of like what happens when, you, you know, when you're uh, working with your kids or when you're in uh, primary school and you get the mercury out on the table. You s- split the little mercury ball and they, you know, they separate into two. And then you, you slowly edge them back together and what does the mercury do? Right? Kind of goes back to being one. That's, that's what Adam wants to do now. I, I, I want... I, I was one, I'm now two, I, I want oneness again, do you see? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and there seems to be, again, we don't want to read too heavily into this, but there seems to be something about the way that God did this to create sort of this instinctive draw to get back what you feel like you want to have. There, there's something that Adam sees in the woman that he likes and, and he wants to get back close. He wants that union to be there. And in a way to symbolize that, God actually takes a physical part of Adam out as if to say, the only way that you are going to get this back is if you join with her. So they, they correspond to each other, they match parts and all, and the otherness, and that otherness and the fact that they do match and complement one another is itself one of the ways that that an attraction is created so that man and woman sort of are drawn together. We also want to say that one of, the, one of the other encouraging things, right, this gets us away from the utilitarian view of marriage, right? If you're going to say, well, you know, marriage, you need to make sure that, you know, as a couple that you're, you're really serving God and working hard in his kingdom. Absolutely, right? Don't, you know, don't throw your life away or don't waste it on trivial things. But that's not to say that, that marriage is just all about work and chore and drudgery, right? Because... When Adam lays eyes on the woman that God has made for him, there is, by all appearances, a very spontaneous response that he has. Like, ha, yes, this is it. I didn't see it with all these other creatures. This I like. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then verse 24 for this reason. For what reason? What, for what reason will a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife? I hear mumbling, but I don't hear any clearly articulated. Okay. For this reason, 
because of the corresponding otherness, the connection, the from one to, and then the two becoming one, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Because this is the way that God set up the creation design. He worked into the very creation of Adam and Eve this natural desire for one another. It's interesting here that obviously when it said that for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, Adam has no father and mother to leave to, to join to Eve. So the author in Genesis is very clear that this is more than just an accidental or coincidental way in which this is set up. God designs man and woman this way. He creates them in this order and with these features because of the long view. I'm, I'm doing it this way because I intend for this to set all of human history in motion when it comes to the relationship between the sexes, between man and woman. So, having said all that, if there is something about Eve, about the woman that the man is drawn to, he notices that there is something like him in her, and yet there's something different about her that, that is attractive, and we would, we would hope and say vice versa, right? That <laughs> the woman finds something attractive about the man too. Maybe that's not necessarily always a given, but... Uh, that being said, how does, it, how does this work then, this aspect or this perspective, maybe we'll say? Looking at the marriage relationship in this perspective, how does that fit with the perspective that we talked about last week, which is that God creates the institution of marriage for the sake of meaningful work in his kingdom? And it seems like these two things go hand in hand. If God has created us for meaningful work in his kingdom as his image bearers, and if he intends, at least at the start here, for that to be a teamwork objective, one man, one woman, partnering up to answer God's call or direction or the job that he, he places on them, isn't it a good thing then that God would give Adam a partner that he can actually enjoy working with. Yes? See, in the differences between man and woman, you would have to say that in one sense, if all God cared about was, okay, just get it done, he could have just as easily created another man to be a partner with Adam. He could have done any number of things in terms of procreation, in terms of productivity, in terms of the relational good, in terms of the good for society, but he does it this way and apparently does it in such a way that we're to recognize that there is a different way that man and woman come together that in some ways can be replicated by other relationships but uniquely in the marriage relationship, there is a coming together that can't be duplicated in every way. And so at the end of chapter 2, you have this blissfully perfect scene in which God has created two image bearers 
both equal in value and worth, both very similar. They're clearly of the same kind, clearly of the same material, and yet there's a difference to them. They, they fit together. And he basically says, now I've given you all this and you just go out and enjoy yourselves. Enjoy yourselves together. Enjoy yourselves in my creation, right? Have fun together as you go out and as you exercise dominion, as you subdue the earth and as you create and as you design and as you cause the earth to flourish, I'm giving you someone that you you can actually enjoy doing this with. That's, that's part of the goodness of God's creation, that it isn't just a self-serving, well, I need some servants down here to kind of tend the place while I stand up above and watch. But he gives us partnerships in marriage that are meant to be enjoyed relationally, that are meant to be enjoyed physically. And in fact, you would say, the more relational enjoyment that exists between a husband and wife, the more productive they become in God's creation and in his kingdom, right? Because everyone knows, just if you just think purely in terms of uh, uh, being out in the workforce, it's one thing to go to work and just to buckle down and do your job. You hate every coworker that you have. They're all a bunch of jerks and they're inconsiderate and you know, mouth breathers and they chew with their mouth open and you know, all this kind of stuff. You can get the job done But the fact that you're working with them is so burdensome, is so repugnant, repellent even in some ways, will inevitably hinder just how productive and how creative you will be. You're not going to want to invest any more time than what you have to with your coworkers in order to, to get a job done or to think outside of the box or to go above and beyond. But if you have co-workers that you actually enjoy, well, work doesn't seem to be so burdensome anymore. I actually have fun when I go to work, and I'm productive. It's the best of both worlds, which is what everybody's looking for, and God does that in some significant way when he puts man and woman together. So, Ash in his book on marriage says this about sort of the spontaneity and the goodness of relational love. He says, love is not a deliberative project, but rather called forth from us by the reality of the beloved, whether the spouse or the creator. This reality being neither the creation of the lover's will nor deriving his or her importance from the lover's ambitions. Here's the simple point. Why does Adam love Eve? When he sees her, why does he, why does he respond the way that he does? Because she's there. Right. Right. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't sit and think, okay, what, what would be the best response? And he doesn't calculate. It's all right. I think, though, maybe she'd be encouraged if I got excited about this. Maybe I'll be excited about it. I'll, I'll encourage her. No. The very fact that Eve exists is itself the reason that Adam responds the way that he does. In that sense, then, we talk about love at first sight, and we talk about, you know, how we're attracted to one another. More often than not, when people talk about how they met or how they started dating or how they got married, there's a lot of that underneath the surface. There's just something about the other person that just 
because they are who they are, is attractive to me. There is sort of a spontaneity and something that you can't really predict when it comes to marital love, especially in its seed form or in its infancy form, of love starting to grow between a man and a wife. Now, having said all that, we have to remind ourselves of where we are in the, in the storyline. We're in Genesis 2, which is before the fall. So everything that we've just said up to this point has to acknowledge the fact that this is what marriage as an institution would largely be were it not for sin. So this perfect, harm, this perfect relationship of a working marriage that is fruitful and productive and doing meaningful work in God's kingdom as an act of service to Him with one another but work that's not a chore and work that I enjoy doing side by side with my spouse, husband or wife, right? That's the way that it should have been. And there should have been constantly free and spontaneous expressions of love and enjoyment and relational kindness and sexual intimacy and productive work, all of those things, But of course, we know that that's not necessarily the case today, which brings us to the question, why is relational love hard work? You ready for this unbelievably insightful answer? Right, you're on the edge of your seats because of sin. If you ever, ever have to ask the question, why is this not working? Why is my husband like this? Why is my wife like that? Why am I like this? Why can't we that sin? Sin. It's the answer every time. Or, I I guess if you wanted to maybe try to do something, you could say the curse, but you're real. I mean, apples and oranges, right? Sin or the curse. So what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is the way that it ought to have been or ought to be now. It's not that way now because when sin enters into the world, there's an interruption in the goodness of God's creation. And so now, part of the meaningful work that has to be done is a redemptive work even for marriage. See, marriage was not necessarily something that we were going to have to rescue. It was going to be a given as we went out and as we worked in the kingdom and as we cultivated and as we cared for. But when sin comes in and mars the creation, it also mars us in our minds, in our hearts, in our beings. It mars the relational abilities that we have. And so as a result, Marriage, which was intended to be an unhindered blessing, now bears some of the signs and the marks of the curse. So that marriage now has to be redeemed or saved or salvaged from the effects of the curse if marriage is going to fulfill all of its potential in the way that God fully intended it to be. Are are we tracking on that? So, just as an example, or a couple of examples, go to Ephesians 5. 
I, uh, I do this oftentimes in, uh, in premarital counseling. We'll, we'll take a session where, where we'll look at the husband and wife address in Ephesians 5, which is stressing the positive. And then we'll take another session, usually the week after, and we'll look at 1 Peter 3, where Peter is addressing husband and wives, but he's stressing the pitfalls of marriage and looking and noticing how overlapping Peter and Paul are on some of their concerns. So in Ephesians 5, if you pick up at 5.22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be uh, to their husbands in everything. 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. I'm just going to pause there. Listen, at, at one level, the marks of sin on marriage are evident in the fact that Paul actually has to address this at all. The very, in other words, the very fact that Paul has to say to husbands, husbands, love your wife. Isn't the implication that for whatever reason, husbands need to be told to do that? Why don't they just do it naturally? Why don't they do it flawlessly? Why don't they do it without any interruption or any pause? Sin. Because at the core existence of every man lies a heart that's turned in on itself. And the only way that that heart gets corrected is first by the new birth, the regeneration, but even then the effects of sin have to be constantly rooted out and battled and fought with and refined and strained and so on and so forth. What God intended to be a very enjoyable, loving relationship, now in the New Testament, by the time we get to the New Testament and we see the history that we have in the Old Testament all the way up to here, even for the church, Paul is saying, husbands, you need to love your wives, and here's how you need to love them, sacrificially. Wives, you need to submit to your husbands. All the way back in Genesis, when God is giving his punishment to the man and to the woman, one of the things that he says for Eve is, that your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. It was meant to be that a loving relationship between Adam and Eve would bear, if you can say it this way, signs of leadership and authority that was very light, almost imperceptible. It was just going to be so... So 
freely given and taken, one, you know, between man and woman. But because of the hostility that sin creates, now what should have been a peaceful, harmonious relationship is marked by estrangement to one degree or another. So much so that from time to time, there's actually going to be a wrestling and a battling over who has control. So the very fact that Paul has to come in and give instructions to husband and wife, even to Christians, should tell us right off the bat that whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, marriage has to be salvaged, it has to be redeemed, it has to be saved, and it has to be cultivated because of the damaging effects of sin. So, in Ephesians 5 then, you have what marriage should be. Marriage should be a husband freely loving his wife to the point of self-sacrifice, where he sacrifices himself for the good and the benefit of his wife. And by the way, that's not a, that's not a, a cheap, you know, sort of good, right? Ultimately, it's a good that's for her betterment, for her Im- improvement. He wants to beautify her in the way that Christ beautifies the church. So he'll go to great lengths to do that. Ideally, the wife should be able to respond to her husband's loving leadership with the kind of submission that is not really a burden or a chore. And they can walk hand in hand off into the sunset. Instead, 1 Peter 3. Instead, in 1 Peter 3, we see these warnings or these admonitions. Peter says in 3.1, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands. So there it is. Same thing that Paul said to the wives in Ephesians 5. Peter saying in 1 Peter 3, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And then skip over, I'm going to skip over a couple of these verses. Um, Skip down to verse 5. For in this way in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. The dilemma now is that instead of a joyful, willing submission to the husband, the wife is going to now start to weigh the cost. What will it cost me to follow my husband or to submit to his leadership or to get up under his protection? And this is incredibly difficult when you're talking about two sinners living under the same roof, because no matter how good the husband is, he is not going to be perfect. And he's always going to make mistakes. And he's always going to drop the ball. And he's always going to make a mess of things at certain points and times. Peter, though, says, wives, be submissive to your husbands even if 
They're disobedient to the word. By the way, in 1 Peter, I think that phrase mean disobedient to the word, I think it's not just a way of Peter saying, if your husbands are kind of going off track a little bit. I think that's a phrase that Peter uses earlier in the, in the letter to refer to unbelievers. So even if you're married to an unbeliever, Christian wife, be submissive to your husband. Because the challenge is, as he uses, as we see in this last statement, in verse 6, you have become the heirs of Sarah. You walk in her footsteps. You've become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. It's risky putting your life in someone else's hands. It's risky having to go along with decisions that they make, especially when you don't think they're making the right decision, especially when you think it's a mistake. So does the wife submit or does she declare her independence? Or does she do a 50-50? I'll submit so long as you, but the minute that doesn't meet the standards, then I've got to go it out on my own. Oh, he said that, did he? <laughs> I'm not doing that. We're not going there. And then for the men... In verse 7, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Instead of the husband freely and lovingly engaging his wife, being drawn to the otherness of his wife as a woman, he begins to see the differences that exist in her, especially those things that he perceives to be weaknesses as things to look down on. She's an emotional wreck. Can't have one conversation with her without her falling to pieces in tears. Women, right? And so in the eyes of the husband, rather than being this great prize and this great blessing one that he would be willing to go to the ends of the earth for. He starts to view her as something of maybe a hindrance or a burden or, I just don't understand this. Thinks of her as less than because she's so different than him. And he doesn't grant her the same kind of honor that she deserves as an image bearer and as an equal citizen in God's kingdom. Do you see how far removed that, that is from Genesis 1 and 2? So all of this then is a way of going about the idea that on the one hand, a Christian perspective of marriage says marriage is a good thing. And marriage is good because God brings together a man and a woman to serve him together as they're serving him together to find their fulfillment, to find a common mission, a common goal, and that could be in any number of areas, but to do so together. And that the added blessing of doing it together is that God gives man and gives woman the kind of partner that they are able to uniquely enjoy in a way that they could not enjoy any other partnership. Relationally, emotionally, physically, all of that. It's the whole ball of wax. But the Christian perspective also comes in to say that's 
what God created to be. That's the design, but sin. And the problem that the world has is that the world acts as if or talks as if you can get the ideal, you can get the Edenic marriage without having to deal with the taints and the effects of sin. Or you can get the Edenic, the perfect marriage without having to rescue it or rehabilitate it or without having to submit to the Lordship of Christ. So, the idea of soulmates living happily ever after is a popular fairy tale. I'm thinking about working this into the next wedding ceremony that I do. Just saying, just look at each other. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> no, I don't, th- I don't think I'll say that. There is some truth to that. Right? There's a certain realism that comes. By, by this, the idea of soulmates living happily ever after is a fairy tale. What, let, me, let me be a little bit more clear because I'm, I, believe me, coming up on 20 years of marriage, I do not have a pessimistic view of marriage, all right? I enjoy it. Marriage is a good thing. I would encourage it, would recommend it highly to innumerable people. What we mean, though, with this idea that these soulmates living happily ever after is a fairy tale is the way that it's, that it's depicted in pop culture, So pop culture is all about finding the one, right? And if I find the one, it'll all be good. No, it won't. Or if I find the one, it's going to be like we're just carried away on this love cloud. It's going to be one exhilarating high after another. It's just not the way that it is. And it's not a bad thing. It's not demeaning to marriage to acknowledge that and to say, listen, marriage is a tremendous gift. But it's like all of the other gifts that God gives us in this fallen world. It is not perfect. Because it's something that ultimately that two sinners undertake together to try to carry out and to execute. There's no way that there can be perfect, unending bliss without any, inter- any interruption or any kind of hiccups along the way. No way that's going to happen. So, I'm going to close with this. This is, um, you don't have this in your notes. This is part of a letter that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote to one of his sons. He, he um, wrote some letters to his son uh, on the the on topics like uh, romance and uh, love and relationships between the sexes. Um, anyway, there's a lot of good things that he says there, but I'm I'm just going to give you a portion of one. Uh, this is sorry. Let me let me back up here. Let me set this up. This is Tolkien talking to his son about this popular conception of the one, the soulmate, and whether or not. You know, that's what you should be in pursuit of. And here's what Tolkien says. Let me see if I can. Okay. He says, Only a very wise man at the end of his life could make a sound judgment concerning whom, amongst the total possible chances, he ought most profitably to have married. Nearly all marriages, even happy ones, are mistakes. 
Wouldn't you love to be that guy's wife, right? But give him time, give him a minute. Even the happy ones are mistakes in the sense that almost certainly in a more perfect world or even with a little more care in this very imperfect one, both partners might have found more suitable mates. But the real soulmate is the one you're actually married to. You really do very little choosing. Life and circumstances do most of it. And then he says parenthetically, though if there is a God, these must be his instruments or his appearances. And then after commenting on sort of the the myths and the fairy tales and the poems that talk about, you know, this these loves that are just perfect and you know, always end up so. He says, in such great inevitable love, the love that we hear talked about, often love at first sight, we catch a vision, I suppose, of marriage as it should have been in an unfallen world. In this fallen world, we have as our only guides prudence, wisdom, rare in youth, too late in age, a clean heart, and fidelity of will. See, one of the things that can't be taken out of the marriage equation for all of the good that comes with it, for all of the joys, for all of the benefits that come with love, the relational love, the physical love, all of that is because of the fact that we live as fallen people in a fallen world in the same way that our relationship with God himself with Christ is one that we have to labor over and we have to discipline ourselves in order to fully enjoy all the goodness that exists in the person in the character of Christ. It happens that way in marriage as well. In one sense, in one sense, every person who has ever been married could probably say, maybe there are a few who would never say this, but even then, I'd be a little skeptical. In theory, they could surmise that there would have been a more compatible mate for them. But the funny thing is, you never think that on the front side of marriage. Why is that? Because it's not until you get into marriage and you start to know yourself and you know your spouse better that you start to see more of the flaws and the imperfections. And what happens is that the world, the deceitfulness of sin comes in and says, ah, dang it, you made a mistake, you missed it. Oh, that's who you should have had. And so to try to find the one, you leave this one to go get that one because that one's the real one, not this one. And then what do you find? You find that that one is a mistake too. Because so long as you're going to define success or mistake on perfection, it doesn't matter who you marry. It's all going to be riddled with mistakes and failures and flaws. But the Christian perspective is, and the one that offers the most meaning and the most hope, is that like everything else in this created order, that when God sets about reconciling the world to himself through Christ, he does that with marriage as well. So that Christians, above all, are not people who should ever go into marriage with this bleak, pessimistic view that this is just going to be a chore or a drudgery that we have to get through. I realize that that happens sometimes. It's tragic and it's sad when it does. 
but Christians of all people should be able to rally one another and should be able to draw one another, turn us ourselves back to the person of Christ and say, for whatever struggles and whatever faults are there, even that he's in the process of redeeming and restoring and making all things new. So that as we labor together, as we love together, even then glory ultimately is being brought to him because all of the work that we do, both in love and out of love, is shown to have its roots in God himself. Questions or comments? Striking a good balance so far, I hope. Marriage in the context of meaningful work as sort of priestly service to our creator and king and yet as a, another reminder of God's sheer goodness he partners us with a member that we can actually enjoy on so many different levels and in ways that we would not be able to enjoy should the pairing be any other way all right so we'll come back next week we'll talk a little bit about the links and limits of sexual intimacy and use that also then to go into the whole um, issue of child rearing and family and all the joys, uninterrupted joys and bliss that come with that. Bow with me in prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Help us, Father, to, uh, to be men and women whose hearts are filled with wisdom that we would see our marriages, the marriages of those around us as something good that you have um, set up in your creation. That not only is it a good thing for the couple who enjoy marriage, it's a good thing for society as a whole uh, that we flourish when marriage is honored and when it's protected. With that wisdom, though, would you also give us the discernment to realize that, uh, like everything else in this world, um, even our marriages, despite our best efforts, are going to be riddled with mistakes and selfish acts and misspoken words and acts. But that even then, that's not to say that, uh, that marriages are lost or that there is no good that can come out of it because uh, you continually, to, uh, continually bring us to that place where we have to die to ourselves live to you, and in so doing, find that you are in the process of resurrecting even marriage relationships on a daily basis. So, Father, thank you for the gift of marriage. Would you help us to labor together joyfully? Help us to have a right mind and perspective on the gift of marriage as we um, go out into the world around us and as we encourage others in this, uh, in this endeavor as well. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.